0: Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Keith. Leading us in worship that blessed assurance, one of those old hymns from way back when that uh, just brings a comfort. That in him we have assurance. That last song we believe is going to be one that we're going to be building a lot of thought on here for the next uh, few months, really. We're gonna start a series. We are beginning a series this morning. Um The series title is, Who is this God we worship? And this morning we're going to look at the reality that God is Trinity. And so let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13, 14. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. If you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, there's some black Bibles in front of you in the seats. Um, esb bibles which is the translation i'll be reading from i just looked it up it's on page 971 if you want to turn to that page uh, i'll be reading from the esb translation 2nd corinthians chapter 13 verse 14 the benediction of paul's writings to this church and they are multiple we'll talk about that in just a minute if you found 2 Corinthians 13, 14, let me invite you to stand. We'll read these few words, words together. It's a short passage, but uh, take us forever to really unpack all that it's got to say. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let me read that again. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the depth of its truth. We thank you, Father, that you have given us something to believe. You have given yourself and you have revealed yourself to us in such a way that we can know you. We can believe you. We can believe in you. And our lives can be transformed as a result of that. So, fathers, we begin this series this morning. I pray that you would impress upon our hearts what it is that you would have us to believe. And then allow those beliefs to do the work of your kingdom in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to begin, as I said a moment ago, a series of 12 messages asking the question, Who is this God we (coughs) worship? Who is this God that we worship? I really want you to hear my heart this morning. I want you to hear where I'm coming from this morning, and that is that we are living in a church culture where the fear of the Lord is absent. We don't fear the Lord because we don't know the Lord. I read this week of a minister, a pastor who travels a great deal in his ministry. And he said he attended several different churches. And, and one of those, as he come into the church, at the door they were handing out popcorn. And while the worship band was rocking out the place, they were bouncing around a beach ball he acknowledges that these are extreme examples. But as this person walks through and has seen these things, different things throughout the churches within our culture, this was his assessment. This is what his assessment was overall. He says, we live in one of the most sacrilegious and blasphemous church cultures in the history of of Christianity. I read that. I pondered that. I tried to create a statement to that, to respond to that, and the only thing I could think of is that that is a pretty damning statement on the nature of the church in our culture. And the sad part is I really wanted to say, no, you're wrong. But I fear he's not too far off. I fear we are building a church culture where we gather to worship a God that we really do not know. This is evident in a lot of ways. One of those is in this rise of what we call celebrity pastors. Those people who we go to hear, but we really have no idea what they're preaching. Whether it be the true gospel or motivational speech or just pure heresy for the sake of winning a popularity contest and drawing the crowd. This is evident in the culture of entertainment worship. We're no longer building our corporate worship services around the word of God and the glory of God. But we gather around either a popular preacher, a band, a stage production, skits, movie clips, special singings, concerts, lights, camera, action, and all these other forms of media and entertainment. This is evident in the culture of an individualized attention. We're building a church culture and churches and services that meet our consumer needs. If you've ever walked out of church and said, I really didn't get anything or I got a lot out of this church or this service, then you may be in danger of slipping into this individual consumer mentality of what I want and not seeking out the discipleship needs that grow us in holiness and Christ's likeness. Too often we replace the nourishment of knowing the crucified and holy Jesus and repackaging him as junk food to satisfy the sweet taste buds of our appetites. I would remind us of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their bellies. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And while there are certainly other examples that I could give, finally this morning, this is evident in the building of a church culture that not only denies biblical doctrine, but intentionally works to counter the gospel of God. I've got to put this in quotes. I heard a a pastor on a a documentary a few weeks ago. I tried to remember exactly what he said, and this is as close to a quote as I can get. He said, I don't believe that God does anything, but I do believe that nothing happens without God. His intention was to deny the power, the will, and the absolute truth of God but to emphasize the individual's right to believe about God whatever they wanted to believe and that all of their beliefs would be equally valued and blessed by whatever version of God you created as long as they presumably improved the human condition. My goal this morning over the next couple of months is not to condemn those who may hold to different views, beliefs, styles of worship, or life. My goal is to help us understand what we believe according to the Bible and how those beliefs transform our lives. I pray We genuinely know God and biblically fear God, and that directs us towards a reverential worship of God. That passage I just read from Philippians chapter 3, Paul ends that section by, by reminding us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Friends, I would advise us, and it would be wise of us, to heed the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 1 and verse 7 tells us to guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil. God is the one you must fear. Christianity is a faith is a, is a faith of action. It's about doing. James tells us this in James chapter 1 verse 22 Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Later James will tell us in chapter 2 verse 17 So faith by itself if it does not have works is dead. Beloved that's the inspired truth of God as revealed in his word. But here's the danger of I want us to avoid. If we have the wrong faith. Or we're hearing something that is not the word. It will lead us to wrong works. Again the warning from James chapter 1 verse 5 says. If any of you lack wisdom. Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. And let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Therefore, we are going to spend the next few weeks asking God for wisdom. From His Word about Himself... So that we are not unstable in all of our ways. So that we are not double-minded in our thinking and tossed to and fro by the wind like a wave in the sea. And that we fear God and enter into His house with wisdom. Here's where we begin. Who is this God we worship? first answer to that question is God is Trinity. God is Trinity. Now there's a number of passages that I could have gone through this morning to drive the meaning of our message, but I wanted to close this morning or begin this morning with the closing, the benediction of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 13, verse 14, we're again Paul writes this to this church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with you all. I'm going to try to do three things this morning. First I'm going to seek to define. As best as possible. The doctrine of Trinity. Second I'm going to look at this passage. And point to a work of each person of the Trinity and intermingle with that I'm going to try to apply these truths, this working to the life of the church and to our lives. So first Paul in this passage mentions three persons the Lord Jesus Christ God and the Holy Spirit. At the onset, I want us to acknowledge two realities. The first one is this. It is beyond the capacity of the human mind to comprehend fully the nature of the Trinity. That's first. Second, however, just because we cannot comprehend fully, that does not mean that we cannot comprehend at all or that we cannot embrace the scriptural teaching of God as Trinity. The next thing I want us to realize is that because we lack full comprehension, there are many false understandings of the nature of Trinity. There are many false teachings. Many times we try to offer an example, a concrete picture of the Trinity, and that almost always perverts this doctrine. A few of those that you will often hear that I've heard many times. One is that we offer this example that God is like an egg. He has a shell, he has a white, and he has a yellow. All three are eggs, but different parts of the egg. This is a false understanding and false teaching of the Trinity, because if you have an egg shell, then you only have part of the egg, and not something that is fully egg. If we looked at the nature of Jesus, we recognize that He is not one third part of God; He is God, fully God, always and altogether. The same is true for the Holy Spirit, the same is true with the Father. If we are studying one of them individually, then we are studying the fullness of God, complete in each person. So God is not divided up in parts. The second example that I've often heard is that God is like water. it's a liquid, a steam, and a solid This is false because you can only have one form or one mode of God at a time. If water is a solid such as ice, then that water in its current state negates the existence of liquid and steam. However, God is fully present all the time in Father, Son, and Spirit. He does not shapeshift into whatever mode is needed for a particular circumstance or environmental reality. He is always fully God. All three fully present. Finally, it's often taught that either the Father, the Son, or the Spirit are three different gods that their unity and their oneness is not in essence, but it's in some other motivation like their love or their power or some other attribute. On the converse of this, it's often taught that one member of the Trinity is not divine, is not God at all. This is especially true of those religious movements that deny the divinity of Christ. The foundation of the biblical understanding of the nature of Trinity is that there is one God eternally present in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This has been debated and argued throughout Christian history, but one of the earliest and clearest understandings of this doctrine came from the Council at Nicaea in 325. To some extent, it has a little bit, though the psalm we sang, we believe, is built more off of the the, uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed gives us this outline. You're going to see it on the, on the projector here on the screen in just a second. And I want us to read through this. Over the coming weeks, we are going to revisit this often. As a matter of fact, if you want to go online and just type in Council of Nicaea or the Nicene Creed, grab a copy of it. Stick it in your Bible. But from the earliest conflicts in Christian history, we have understood the nature of the Trinity to be one God, one in essence, three in person, and this creed proclaims that. So read along with it. If you want to read out loud, that's fine. If you just want to read to yourself, that's all right too. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, Eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, pay attention to this next phrase, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. The word Catholic there means universal, not a denomination or sect of Christianity. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So I said, we will revisit this over the coming weeks because today as we look at Trinity, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at God the Father, a couple of weeks looking at God the Son, a couple of weeks looking at God the Holy Spirit before we bring it back together. To look again at God as Trinity, the crux of this creed is that it affirms the Trinity in that second paragraph where I highlighted for just a second the phrase that says "eternally begotten of the Father." He's speaking, the, the creed here is speaking specifically of Jesus. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being. That's the key phrase with the Father. Of one being indicates that there is one essence or one true, all-encompassing nature of God. And that all-encompassing nature is fully and completely present in all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father is fully and completely God, though an individual in person and role. God the Son, likewise, is fully and completely God, though an individual in person and and role and furthermore the Holy Spirit is fully and completely God, though an individual. In person and role. Again, again, I want us to remember that it is impossible for us to reason or illustrate this in our natural world. And I think that's part of what holds the mystery of worship is that we cannot comprehend the incomprehensible nature of God. B.B. Warfield, the Christian theologian of a century ago, writes this, As the doctrine of the Trinity is indiscoverable by reason, so it is incapable of proof from reason. There is no analogies to it in nature, not even in the spiritual nature of man, who is made in the image of God. In His Trinitarian mode of being, God is unique. And as there is nothing in the universe like Him in this respect, so there is nothing which can help us to comprehend fully His nature. So we embrace the Word of God. We embrace the Word of God that says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we embrace the teaching of Scripture that's found in Matthew 28. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see all three persons present at the baptism of Jesus In Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says, When Jesus, the Son, was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and the heavens opened up, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, the voice of the Father, with whom I am well pleased. The doctrinal statement of our convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, reads this way about the nature of Trinity and the nature of God as Trinity. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God is infinite and holy and in all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is perfect, or he has perfect knowledge. Uh, His perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. The eternal, triune God reveals himself to us as Father, (coughs) Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. Here's what I need us to understand this morning. And I pray that we're not more confused now than when we started. But what I need us to fully embrace this morning, as difficult as it is to wrap around our minds, we need to understand that there is one God. In essence of attributes, character, capacity, power, and glory, there is one and only one God. This is the God of the New Testament and the Old Testament. He is unchanging in that from before He created creation, God was completely and fully God. He is the exact same God that exists today. He has not changed in wisdom, power, or character. He is God forever and always, yesterday, today, and forever. And this one God eternally exists in three distinct persons. The Father... Is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. No division, no separation, no diminishing. They are one in essence, in attributes, and in worth, though distinct in person. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. We are called to love all three persons equally and fully. We are called to follow and obey all three persons equally and fully. And we are called to worship all three persons equally and fully. Now we're going to flesh all this out over the next few months as we take a look at each person Of the Trinity individually. But I urge us, please, never forget and never deny that God is God. That He is one. That the Father is God and the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. And so when we come back and we read a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul writes... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Apostle is reminding his readers, both the 1st century church and the 21st century church, that God as Father, that God as Son, and that God as Holy Spirit is intimately engaged in our lives and in our relationship with Him. So let's move to the second thing I hope to do this morning. And that is to take a look at each person from 2 Corinthians 13 14 and demonstrate what they do and how that makes a difference in our lives. We're only going to be looking at one element here, as that's all Paul gives us in this passage. But let's dig into this for a minute the grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We need to know the context of where this passage comes from. This is the the benediction, the closing remark of at least two letters that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. To say the very, very least, the church at Corinth was a mess. Every way you can define it, it was a mess. They were divided among leadership. They were accepting sexual immorality into the church. They were doctrinally confused. They were seeking to gain knowledge or wisdom for their own narcissistic pride. They were a mess. And Paul has written at least two letters. We've got those, probably more. To help them get back on and stay on track of their gospel ministry and glorifying God as they make disciples of Jesus Christ. And all through their messiness, all through the struggles that they've got, Paul ends his words to this church by reminding them that they are assured grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. What a beautiful word. Grace. Contemporary pastor and theologian by the name of Sinclair Ferguson writes The most important, thrilling, and challenging area of New Testament teaching is the Christian's union and communion with Jesus Christ. This is the heart, he says, of sanctification. And this is what Paul is closing his blessing, blessing with. A consummate reminder that no matter the depth of struggle, the gravity of loss, the pain of life, we are, by the grace of Jesus' death and resurrection, church, we are, are in Christ and Christ is in us. We have union with Jesus. Paul writes to the Galatian church in chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. This is the pure and unadulterated definition of grace. That's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That in his death we die. And in his resurrection we are granted. We are given eternal life. And furthermore we can't live this life. Here and now with full assurance that God the Son has imputed, has given, has placed on us His grace for our lives. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'd think that'd be enough, but Paul goes on and he says, And the love of God. He continues to build this Trinitarian blessing on the troubled church at Corinth by reminding them that God, that God, the Father of life, the creator of creators, the Lord who is the great I am, the sustainer, the protector, the provider, the sovereign, the just and righteous one, that God, he loves He loves them. He loves them when they are confused. He loves them when they are scared. He loves them when they are alone. He even loves them when they get it all wrong and fall into sin. He loves them. It's a good reminder to think on Paul's words to the Romans. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died. Paul reminds them that they know the love of God and that God's love for them never dies. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God then Paul says the fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible tells us dozens and dozens of times, Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible says, of God, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You know, we've talked, as we looked at the first 12 chapters of Acts, we've talked about the importance of the fellowship of believers. And now I want us to multiply that by infinity because we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit resides in us. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that we are sealed for all of eternity by the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us in John 14 that we will be comforted and helped and taught By the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Romans 8. That the Holy Spirit. Who knows our hearts. Who knows our spirits. Is praying on our behalf. In words we cannot even understand. Before God the Father. Fellowship. With the Holy Spirit. He is here. He is with us. He is walking among us. He resides. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now look at this last phrase. Be with you all. As we think for a moment about how this makes a difference in our lives, in our individual lives, and in the life of our church, let's, let's meditate on that phrase. Be with you you all. God. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Complete in power, in essence, in presence, in will, and in eternity has chosen by His sovereign providence to enter into time and join with us in you all, with you all into a Relationship that's intimate and personal and eternal be with you all. A relationship pictured in grace, founded in love, and secured and worked out in fellowship. So, Christian and even church, whatever your journey. Whatever your your struggle. Whatever your fear. Whatever your uncertainty. Whatever your confusion. Whatever your whatever. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Walks this journey. With you. With us. Beloved, what have we to fear? God is with us. His grace has secured us as his covenant people by his sovereign will. God is with us. His love has compelled us to live and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The quintessential expression of his love is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and his fellowship is our comfort. His fellowship is Is our hope. God is with us. And God is in us. The hope of all glory. So why does the Trinity matter? The Trinity matters because God is one. He is one in essence. And God is three in person. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that Trinity... We find what we most need, grace that forgives our sins and joins us to Christ. Love that holds us in a world that is filled with hate and fellowship in a culture that is defined by rejection and fear. I want to close this morning by reading Psalm 27. I'm going to invite you to just spend the next few minutes as we prepare our hearts for communion, to prepare our hearts to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we prepare ourselves to gather around the table of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, and with Christ, and with the Father. And with the Spirit. I just want you to I want you to close your eyes maybe and just just listen to the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm twenty seven. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me yet, I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord. That I will seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter. In the day of trouble He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. My mother and my father have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe... Out violence I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living wait for the Lord be strong may your heart take courage wait for the Lord